What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another fun-filled episode of The Brian Nichols Show. Yeah, I'm digging this new uh, theme song we have here. Uh, guys, thank you for, for stopping by uh, for another fun-filled episode of The Brian Nichols Show here on a part of the We Are Libertarians Network. I am your host, Brian Nichols. And uh, man, oh man, it, it's it's a pleasure to uh, to be joining you here this week, um, hailing from the great uh, state of Pennsylvania over in the uh, the cradle of liberty, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, so welcome again, Brian Nichols Show here. Uh, we got a fun-filled week for you going forward, talking today about the uh, the topic of net neutrality. Um, should be a lot of fun. We'll dig into uh, net neutrality as it's come up in the news as of late and kind of dig into the the arguments that are being presented on both sides of the issue. But before we get there, a uh, little bit of a housekeeping. So uh, for those of you who it's your first time here joining the uh, the Brian Nichols Show, uh, welcome. We're, we're glad to have you here. Um, so um, to start off the Brian Nichols Show, uh, yes, we are a libertarian-leaning podcast, but... If you are a, a person on the left or on the right, please do not be uh, be afraid of the libertarian craziness. <laughs> we are a, a podcast for anyone and everyone. Um, really, the, the goal of The Brian Nichols Show is to bring people on um, from all different political persuasions, uh, but also to be able to go out of our way um, to discuss the news of the day in an objective manner, uh, with the goal of three things. Number one, helping educate, enlighten, and inform. Now, usually, and it just I say usually because that seems to be the uh, the <laughs> as-of-late happenings here in the Brian Nichols Show. We've had guests on from all forms of political thought. Last week, I was joined by uh, Texas State Congressional Candidate uh, Jacob Letty, uh, who is running there in the, uh, I think it's Texas 12th Congressional District, um, as a libertarian. <clears throat> and I've, I've had people on from all all walks of life, from uh, your, your far-left socialists all the way to uh, uh, some anarchists. Uh, those of you, here's a little sneak peek behind the curtain. Next week, uh, we will have Libertarian 2020 presidential candidate Adam Kokesh. He'll be joining me um, via Skype audio call. Uh, so that, that should be definitely be some fun. So really the entire premise of the show like I said is to bring on people from all different walks of life from all different means of thinking uh, really to to go ahead and uh, present the news and present the issues you care about and to discuss them in a way that maybe is, it's going to help you understand it better um, not only from a libertarian perspective but if you are a libertarian listen to the uh, the Brian Nichols show to uh, to present the arguments maybe in a different way that you uh, you haven't heard about in your your podcast that you listen to or into the uh, the Facebook groups that we find ourselves uh, uh, entrenched in. So, uh, with that being said, as always, you can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And uh, also, please go ahead and uh, subscribe to us on Patreon at B Nichols Liberty. I'm going to be honest, guys. Every little bit helps. Uh, you know, help us continue to produce this kind of content that you enjoy and you come back for each and every week. Um, also, uh, again, a little peek behind the curtain going forward. Uh, going to have some fun things coming up uh, for you guys to take advantage of in terms of some content um, and some things that you can go ahead and purchase. Wink, wink. Um, it, that'll be libertarian in flavor, so be sure to, to uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, but also, uh, to conclude, please, uh, if you enjoyed today's show and you enjoy The Brian Nichols Show, please take a minute to go to iTunes 
And uh, please leave a like and review the Brian Nichols show. Give us five stars. Tell us, uh, you know, what what you you've enjoyed about the Brian Nichols show. Or hey, give me a heads up where I can I can get better. Things I can do better. Um, so with that being said, let's dig into the news of the day. Um, so starting off here, I want to talk about the the great thing that has been happening as of late, and that is the fact that the FCC is going to be uh, finally having the uh, net neutrality rules expire. Uh, going from Reuters here, we have the landmark U.S. net neutrality rules will expire on June 11th, and new regulations handing providers broad new power over how consumers consumers can access the internet will take effect. The FCC said on Thursday in setting the date. The FCC in December repealed the Obama-era open internet rules, air quotes there, set in 2015, which bars providers from blocking or slowing down content or charging consumers more for certain content, which we will dig into in a little bit. The prior rules were intended to ensure a, quote, free and open internet, give consumers equal access to web content, and bar broadband servers uh, service providers from favoring their own material over others. The new rules require internet providers to tell consumers whether they will block or slow content or offer paid fast lanes. Comcast Corp, Verizon Communications Incorporated, and AT&T have all pledged to not block or discriminate against legal content after the net neutrality rules expire in June. Reuters first reported the June 11th effective date disclosed in an FCC document on Thursday. Um, so let's let's take a, a time out from that. So this is, in, in my personal opinion, this is great news. Uh, the FCC, um, in their original net neutrality uh, rules that they went through back in 2015, uh, it, it was it was horrible. And, and I'm going to dig into it in a little bit because I know there is a lot of confusion as to, number one, what is net neutrality? But number two, why the... Um, the position from a, a libertarian or a small government individual is that lib, uh, that net neutrality, as it was promoted by the FCC and the Obama administration, was a bad thing. So let's first and foremost take a step back. So what is net neutrality? So the idea, as, as was discussed in this article, was that net neutrality was going to go ahead and it was going to prevent um, ISPs which would be your, your Comcast, your Verizons, your AT&Ts, your Spectrums, uh, CenturyLink, all of those uh, you know, various ISPs in the world from um, essentially, and this is where I'm saying, this is what it was supposed to do, and we'll talk about why it wasn't right, um, but the idea was that it was going to prevent them from uh, being able to basically bar any content um, or throttle any content uh, based on based on whether or not they wanted you to have access to it or if you were willing to pay for it. Um, now, with that being said, I, I did want to kind of explain the idea of what net neutrality was um, because really when it comes down to it, net neutrality was anything but being uh, neutral. So the truth is there's a reason why the likes of a Comcast or or a Verizon or an AT&T were back in, in the time when it was being decided whether or not to continue with net neutrality, that they were so supportive of it. Now, that also is true with regards to the likes of these massive, uh, massive, massive broadband consumers like your YouTubes, your Netflixes, your Hulus, and the likes. Um, so first and foremost, what is net neutrality? So again, the idea was that it was going to prevent um, 
in the first aspect, is going to prevent these broadband companies from charging different rates for carriers, or, or I'm sorry, for companies based on the content or the bandwidth that they were using. Now, this sounds well and good because uh, your average American is going to look at this and say, well, if I am, if I am um, Joe's Pizza Shop and I want to have a website where people can go ahead and order pizzas from my pizza shop, I shouldn't have to be worried about paying an exorbitant amount for internet service because now I'm at a competitive disadvantage to Pizza Hut because Pizza Hut is able to pay more in terms of their ability to um, you know, go ahead and have their internet services. So the idea was, in, in theory, to prevent these ISPs from giving preferential treatment and speed to companies that were willing to pay more in order to have better access and better bandwidth to their their sites versus your your small mom and pop shop. Um, now this was particularly true for those companies like that of a Google or a Netflix. Now the problem is that while that's all great in theory, in in practice it it actually ends up doing the opposite. So first and foremost, we have to look and see why why would it be that a an ISP like a Comcast or a Verizon would go out of their way to support net neutrality because if we're going to be honest with ourselves and thinking about this objectively, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't behoove these ISPs to support a piece of legislation that would financially cripple them, correct? I mean, if I was an ISP and I was trying to make as much money as possible, then I would go out of my way to charge exorbitant amounts of money to these high bandwidth customers and I would screw the little guy too. But here's where it gets true, or it gets tricky. And here's the truth. The reality about net neutrality and why the likes of a Comcast or Verizon support net neutrality is because at the end of the day, net neutrality is the, the pinnacle of corporate welfare. Number one, it stifles competition. Number two, it allows these ISPs to charge higher base rates for their data. Now, what does that mean? So... Think about it this way. You are, uh, I think the best analogy, and this is the best one I've found, um, is to compare net neutrality to the likes of an all-you-can-eat buffet. Okay? So you uh, you have a buffet, and you have your, your, your all-you-can-eat, and you walk in, you pay $10 for an all-you-can-eat buffet. Now you have your your 150 pound person, they'll come in and they will eat one plate for $10. So that one plate is now worth $10. But then you have your your 350 pound offensive lineman from the Philadelphia Eagles coming in and he eats seven plates at the all-you-can-eat buffet. All of a sudden though, the, the 150 pound person's thinking, well, time out. I paid $10 for one plate. He paid $10 for seven plates. And that's exactly it. Is that now you're having your your hundred or your three hundred pound person, three hundred fifty pound person paying the same amount but using or consuming seven times as much. Now, obviously, this is we're talking about uh, an all you can eat buffet where the person could raise their prices, um, which makes sense. Um, and they could say, you know, hey, I want to charge each plate. We'll say price per plate. 
So now all of a sudden we'll say it's $3 per play. Well, the offensive lineman now is saying, well, that's not fair. I don't want to do that because I was getting away with having seven plates for $10. Now, in this situation, we'll use this. The, the offensive lineman is your Netflix, your your YouTubes, the high bandwidth, the high plate consuming uh, carrier, or I'm sorry, the uh, company. And and the all-you-can-eat buffet is owned by, pick your, your local ISP, your Comcast. We'll use Comcast here in Philadelphia because it's uh, the, uh, the largest ISP locally. So... In a, in a, in a, a non-net neutrality world, what would be ideal, right? It would be the, the ability for, let's say, your, um, your, your Comcast, your owner of the buffet, to be able to say, no, you know what? I am noticing that this 350-pound guy is eating seven plates of food. So instead of it being $10 for all you can eat, I'm going to do a... Um, a price per plate. So I'm going to say it's going to be $3 per plate. So it's it's more, not only is it more um, palatable for your average uh, person who's not eating seven plates to come in and maybe spend a little less, but now the person who's actually going to be eating more has to pay uh, to, to match that, right? What new net neutrality does is it actually prevents that from happening. Net neutrality prevents the owner of the buffet, or in this case, uh, net neutrality prevents the ISP from being able to charge a a price per plate, if you will. Okay, so what's the, the what's the, the the roundabout here? Okay, what what is the response per what the guidelines have been established with net neutrality that now your owner of the buffet is going to be able to take advantage of? Okay, well they have only one option really. Well, we'll say two. The first option is to keep the price of the all-you-can-eat buffet at $10, right? So now you have your your 150-pound person still paying $10 and getting one plate, and you have the uh, the offensive lineman from the Eagles pay, paying $10 and eating seven plates. That's one option. But the other option is for the owner of the buffet to say, well, you know what? I can't have any disparity between the price, so if I need to recoup my losses, then it would just make sense to maybe, I don't know, raise the overall entry to enter the all-you-can-eat buffet to, let's say, 15 bucks or 20 bucks. So now you have a situation where your 150-pound person is coming in, and now they're having to pay 20 bucks just to have access to the uh, the buffet, right? With their one plate. But you have the offensive lineman from the Eagles who's saying, 20 bucks, that's nothing. Not only am I still eating seven plates of food, but I'm an offensive lineman for the Eagles. I'm making, you know, $7 million a year, let's say. I can afford the 20 bucks a month. Or 20 bucks a, uh, a, a session. And that right there is the number one issue overall with net neutrality is that it has created an environment where your ISP, or in, as we were using the analogy here, the owner of the buffet is simply going to raise the cost of the access universally for their, their services. And the reason they support that is number one, it's going to be able to keep them within the guidelines that were, were put in the regulations by the government, number one. But number two, 
they're going to be able to increase or at the very least maintain their profits across the board because now your your small bandwidth consumer is going to be paying uh, equal access the uh, same amount for, for compared to that of your your offensive linemen or or the the Netflixes or the YouTubes that are gobbling up bandwidth in the world. Now, conversely, YouTube and Netflix and Hulu love net neutrality because what it allows them to do is say, well, fine, we're going to pay that $20 a month now for the, the access to the uh, the buffet. And uh, we know that, you know, not, not, let's say not Joe's Pizza Shop, Joe's uh, Joe's video streaming service. Joe has a, a a blockbuster video rental store, and he's he wants to go ahead and digitize all of his movies, and then create a subscription service for the movies, right? And he's going to charge five dollars a month for movies, whatnot. Uh, but now Joe has to be on the equal playing field to that of of a Netflix or or a Hulu, and Netflix knows that they can keep those com- competitors out of the market, right? So that's. The, the dirty secret is why you have these these ISPs as well as these large data companies like Netflix and Google supporting net neutrality because they can absorb not they not only can they absorb the added cost but they can also in this kind of environment push out competition right so in summary what does this mean so ISPs are going to be start making more money because they're going to be able to raise the overall cost for their services. And large data company users can now unfairly compete with their smaller competitors. Now, what does that mean for you as a consumer? It means higher prices across the board. It means less innovation, less uh, less changes, and less uh, reason to go out and start exploring in, in terms of research and development. But number three, it also it will, it will decrease your options across the board, not only from a... a, a uh, a standpoint of your your options for internet service pro, uh, providers, but also in terms of where you can get your content, right? Now, one thing to consider is, and I get this, I, I do get this argument, is that, well, you, well Brian, you, you trust ISPs to, to uh, in a non-net neutrality world to be fair in their pricing and to and to respond to their, their consumer demands? No, I don't. But... When you have an opportunity for the market to actually respond to the actions by an ISP, right? I trust that more than trusting the government because with the government, there is no recourse. There are no options. With the government puts in regulations, that's going to be it. Now, the government, they weren't protecting freedom. By getting into the, the marketplace, they were they were what they were doing was they were stifling the innovation, creating mo- monopolies actually, which is which is ironic, and ultimately hurting consumers. Now, if you're upset, right, that well, I have only two options, or I only have one option for an ISP in my local area. All right, well, you know what? That's that's not for you to go and say, well, we need to create more regulation, right, to to try to go out of our way. To, to fix a problem. The reality is a lot of the reasons that we have only one or two options for ISPs in local communities is because they make sweetheart deals with the, uh, the, these ISPs locally. And it makes it almost impossible to compete. So you have almost essentially government regulated and government encouraged monopo- monopolies in, in the uh, ISP market. So with that being said, I did want to go ahead. I, I have a couple articles here. I wanted to, uh, to read. All right, because 
I, I, I try and explain it as eloquently as I think I can. Um, but to be honest, believe it or not, there are people out there who can, uh, who can do better than I. So one of the best articles I found uh, with regards to explaining net neutrality was, was from that of, uh, of Daily Wire. So this is from uh, November 27th uh, from the Daily Wire. Uh, back when, when it originally came out that uh, Ajat Pai, Ajat Pai, FCC chair, I can't. I can't pronounce his name, um, when he announced that he's going to be looking at net neutrality. So, the topic of net neutrality is one of the hottest debated issues of modern day, and for good reason. We all use the internet, and thus have a natural tendency to weigh in on issues regarding its regulation. The internet, however, is a complex hierarchical structure riddled with reams of vagaries. That's a fun word. Vagaries? Moving on. Without first understanding them, people shouldn't attempt to propose legislation. Unfortunately, from congressmen to commentators to comedians, this is exactly what we've been seeing regarding net neutrality. The only hot political issue where coverage is comparably poor is that of firearms, which we've gotten into as well. In fact, USA Today and Vox.com tweeting out explainers on the civilian AR-15 with a chainsaw and a grenade launcher attached to it is the perfect analogy for how net neutrality is covered in the media. Remember that? Remember uh, USA Today had that uh, uh, <laughs> the AR-15 and it was showing all the different attachments and it had the, the chainsaw like a la Gears of War 20, uh, was it tw- 2008? Oh, classic. Curb stomp. Moving on. But before getting to net neutrality, what are some key concepts about how the internet works that need explaining? All right. So what is in the internet? The internet is best described as a network of networks. It's divided into regions that perform different functions. Access to the internet is provided through an internet service provider, as we were talking about, ISPs. The ISP you're probably most familiar with is the one you pay directly for your home internet. So, for example, as I mentioned, AT&T, Verizon, Bell, Comcast, Spectrum, etc., etc. These providers are known as Tier 3 providers. We're getting into the weeds. Uh, but ISPs do a lot more than simply sell you a home internet plan. There are also Tier 1 and Tier 2 internet service providers. Um, So how this works. So you have the Tier 1 providers are essentially who lays the pipes, right? Um, So think of it as like a, a web. The actual structural backbone of the web is a Tier 1 provider. Now... Tier 2 providers are going to be more of your regionalized local companies. So for in, not, not necessarily local, your regional uh, companies. So for instance, um, in the Northeast, Comcast is a very um, strong uh, provider. Uh, over in, in the West, you have your, your Century Links also in the South. And then down to the Tier 3, you have like your, um, your local provider. So it'd be like up in New York. Uh, Time Warner Cable, uh, formerly Time Warner Cable, now Spectrum. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, you might have Pentel Data, and, and in some places, you can even get down to like your your mom and pop shops. Um, so, Tier One ISPs, like I was mentioning, backbone of the internet. There's about a dozen or so, uh, and they do peer with one another, thus not having to pay anyone for transit as they have no providers. Tier One networks can re- reach uh, every other network on the internet. Uh, now, the next internet hierarchy, as I was mentioning, are your tier twos. So essentially, tier twos are, uh, as the uh, the author here explains, uh, bridges between tier ones and uh, tier threes, which I mentioned were the local ISPs that connected the internet. Uh, and then we have um, internet exchange points, which are called IXPs, which are large 
actual physical exchange points where uh, data is exchanged between peers. Usually, um, now just a little bit about me, my background, I'm actually a communications consultant within the telecommunications uh, sector. So I have quite a bit of experience and, and, and uh, you know, actually working with these, these local as well as the tier three, tier twos, and some tier ones. Um, now, ex- internet exchange point, that might be, uh, it might be like a, a, a data center or um, something along those lines. So, uh, they, they usually have like these gigantic buildings that have, uh, there's a thing called a mark where all the internet comes in. They'll have like three or four or five or six different, um, actual physical pipes coming in of, of internet service into the buildings themselves. Um, now this is good. <laughs> this right here, this is going to get into the weeds. I'm not going to get into the weeds here. The, the link for this will be attached into the, the show notes. Um, but basically we're going to go in, this goes way into the weeds in terms of how, um, ISPs will transmit data, right? Um, now you can go ahead, dig into that, but let's, let's actually say what is net neutrality. So this, again, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, traditionally, if a Google, uh, if Google or, or the likes want access to the global internet to deliver its content to you, uh, it would go through the ISP. And what would happen is Google would become a consumer. So the ISP in turn would provide a transit to Google. Um, so in this associated diagram, Google, um, would pay, uh, an ISP for service. The ISP would then route that traffic to the internet exchange point, which would be where those data centers are, uh, where it's the peers would access the ISP. So customers of, let's say a different ISP. So let's say a spectrum versus a Comcast, um, would then have access to whatever it was that Google was trying to present. Um, so it could be YouTube, Gmail, uh, Google Drive, you name it. So literally it's going through one uh, avenue, hitting an intersection point, and then going to the other. So here's what one of the main arguments, uh, actually two main arguments from the neutrality. <sighs> Number one. ISPs cannot offer Google a premium service, faster speeds, better reliability over any, uh, over any arbitrary smaller company that can't afford to pay the same price. So all customers must be treated equally. And then number two, all traffic through the ISPs must be treated the exact same way. So that means that if an ISP is transmitting packets for file transfer for an online storage requirement, it must treat the data packets it transfers the exact same way they would treat packets of live video. Um, never mind the fact that video is a far more dependent and reliable transmission, and we won't even get into uh, to hosted uh, telephony. So VoIP, uh, which you know the, the the packets for hosted VoIP are super 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 touchy um, to, to things like latency and jitter uh, and the likes. Uh, so continuing, the ISP is not allowed to make this distinction and must treat them the same. Bad. Uh, the fact is, however, that uh, today Google does not do this. Here's what Google actually does. Google and other large enterprises that deliver content to end users, so as we were mentioning, Netflix, Hulu, Facebook, maintain their own global network infrastructure and peers directly with ISPs at internet exchange points. So that what that means is, think of the server, right? Instead of in that, in that big gigantic server room, uh, server building, like a big warehouse basically, instead of I'm at Google headquarters, point A, I have an internet connection going out to the, the server, the, the carrier hotel, if you will, and then from that carrier hotel, I talk internally uh, to the other ISPs, and then I shoot out the other way to me, the consumer, through another uh, ISP. The reality is in these carrier hotels, right, Google has actually built an infrastructure 
within the hotel to make it easier for them to communicate with these local ISPs. So what does this mean? Google is not a customer of an ISP. Google will simply connect to these uh, internet exchange points and here it appears with service providers. This way, Google has far more control over how its content is delivered to users. So if Google wants to treat YouTube video packets differently than packets transferred for uploading Google Docs files, it can. And that's important because the likes of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you're doing hosted telephony, the, 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 the manner in which those packets are, are channeled out and then are distributed are different than that of if you're going to your browser and opening up an email and getting an HTML email coding and the likes and just it's populating words onto the screen because things like, like voice and video and audio are so sensitive. Google has to, and, and any other ISP or anything that's peering with an ISP has to be much more focused on providing uh, a different uh, standard of quality of service for those because of their sensitivity. Um, so net neutrality laws, will have no effect on Google because Google doesn't actually pay for the transit it provides to deliver the content to users, it peers with them. So, why would Google itself support net neutrality? So here's the thing, Google itself has, has gone out and they've said, we stand together, support a free and open internet, blah, blah, blah. However, Google is privy to the fact that smaller companies, competitors, startups, all benefit of the resources and capital available to build the global network infrastructure and peer with providers, they must instead become customers of a higher tier service provider to reach end users. And what better way to stifle competition in the market than have, have these smaller companies subject to bevy of regulations that you are free of. So enforcing net neutrality does the exact opposite of what the proponents claim. It results in an internet where a handful of large corporations have access to peering agreements with large transit providers, what some people refer to as the fast lane, and the rest are subject to far fewer options in terms of service. And even upon growing and gaining market share will be denied the opportunity to shop around for different ISP plans that suit them best. Uh, it can be found over the Daily Wire, and that will be attached into the show notes. Um, and then uh, I did want to uh, to do one other article here. This is from Kyle Swan over at the, uh, sadly, uh, recently uh, shut down Rare Liberty uh, classic website. It always had a great libertarian perspective. Um, so Kyle, in, in this very succinct, um, succinct article, which I'll share with you as we go here, as I take a drink. Also, don't forget, if you're joining us for the first time today, follow me on Twitter. At B. Nichols Liberty. I have a nice Google uh, or Google, a nice Twitter moment uh, dedicated to net neutrality. We can also find all these links, which will be included in the show notes. <sighs> Moving on. Kyle Swan writes at Rare Liberty. Net neutrality has been getting so many hot takes lately, it almost makes you wish someone would be non-neutral about the content that blocks it. These have come during the run-up to the federal uh, FCC's vote to reverse the uh, commission's June 2015 reclassification of internet service providers as Title II of the 1934 Communication Act Telecommunication Common Carriers. So-called edge providers like uh, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, which will be called FAMGA, fun, are contract carriers. They're like typical mark. They, like a typical market service, provide their content and apps subject to mutual agreement. From the beginning of the commercial internet until the 2015 reclassification, this was true of internet service providers too. 
Their reclassification as common carriers, however, made ISPs subject to FCC regulation, like telecommunication companies and other public utilities are. So, for instance, like your, your phone lines, electricity, water, etc. The primary stated aim of this re- reclassification was to ensure access neutra- uh, neutrality for online content. With the FCC's recent decision to repeal net neutrality law, ISPs will basically return to the status quo. Uh, Title II will no longer apply to them. Instead, ISPs will again be under jurisdiction of the FTC, uh, which will again be responsible for pursuing cases to protect consumer privacy and data security, including cases involving fraudulent, deceptive, and otherwise unfair and anti-competitive business practices. Notice, then, that this will not be uh, a move from public utility-style regulation to no regulation, but rather the effect would be a shift in the regulatory modus operandi from the set of prospective rules under the FCC to a framework based on case-by-case enforcement by the FTC to ensure, quote-unquote, fair competition and ISP transparency, including transparency and in how the ISP handles customers under various service plans. Which of these regulatory regimes best ensures that internet access is broadly available and not subject to unreasonable restrictions or abuse of ISP market power in certain areas is an empirical question. Unfortunately, it has become a source of ideological hand-wringing often given rise to speculations about the dystopian internet future. One consideration in examining the empirical question is the history of the development of the internet in the period from the 90s to the 2015 reclassification. The most significant tech policy that applied to the early internet was the 1996 congressional update to the Title 47 telecom law in Section 230, which carved out significant legal space for an environment of permissionless online innovation. The early 90s internet was basically just a few big newspapers and a bit of porn, with pics taking upwards of 45 frustrating seconds to load, mind you. You might check your email a few to buy or email or maybe buy a few books instead of, well, basically anything on Amazon, too, but you would quickly run out of things to do. Anyway, you might need to free up the telephone line, ah, classic, or want to turn on uh, whatever must-see TV, literally must, since streaming options didn't exist, uh, happen to be program viewing at that precise moment. The power of information, yes, but this deregulated environment in the span of only about 20 years, 20 years, mind you, we now have access to an amazingly creative, entertaining, dynamic, and connected virtual world that now even extends into meat space with Uber, Airbnb, etc., and driverless cars just around the corner. All this happened, of course, without FCC-enforced net neutrality regulations. Actually, the early 90s internet was strictly accurate picture of the worst dystopian fears of net neutrality advocates who want a public utility regulation for ISPs. Then, we purchased access to the internet by purchasing access to content centers, like those curated by CompuServe or AOL. Ah, good old-fashioned AOL with a instant messaging classic. Uh, These ISPs only provided access to their associated content, forums, sites, and users. The wider world of the web was essentially blocked. Over time, though, a pretty uh, and pretty quickly, ISPs came around to the current model where they provide genuine access and along with uh, the Facebooks of the world, uh, some content apps and other services as well. Again, all this happened without the public utility style FCC uh, prescription regulates. Are there reasons to think that the pre-2015 environment was a bad basis for in- uh, internet innovation to access to continue uh, apace? One worry, uh, and this is again from the article here on, on Rare Liberty, uh, that was had alluded to concerns limited to ISP competition. Most customers uh, have at least two wireline competitors, but still some only have one. ISPs will, if they can, abuse situations where they have market power. Remember what we talked about earlier. 
To that extent they have, of course, they do, we, uh, they do because we mostly continue to live with the structure left over from when local telephone companies and cable networks were p- public monopolies. Public monopolies. But this sounds like a job for the FTC to, to address complaints with about anti-competitive practices. And by the way, the FTC doesn't have the legal enforcement authority who are titled to public utilities. I think more should be done to promote ISP competition, but in addition to cable broadband services, there's also competitive pressure from cellular and satellite providers, such as your, your uh, DirecTVs, uh, your DISH networks, and, and those likes. Um, as long as barriers to market entry are sufficiently low, one would expect this pressure to include ISPs to provide consumers with the content they want. Now, <clears throat> with uh, open uh, open markets, even if these worries are more serious than uh, we've been credited, the reasons to think that the FCC uh, there are reasons to think that FCC regulations would address them in better ways than FTC oversight. Maybe would the FCC be better uh, guarantor of openness and access to net neutrality? One is doubtful. I mean, George Carlin said that one of the the FCC primary functions is to regulate media content. And let's be honest, we really shouldn't have the FCC anywhere near that kind of content. More, it turns out that the open internet rules the uh, the FCC devised based on its Title II authority expressly permit ISPs to block, filter, and curate content. Finally, if the regulatory structure administered by the FCC is more costly for ISPs than it takes to satisfy FTC oversight, it's possible companies will have less revenue to devote to infrastructure investments in areas currently underserved. Look, says Kyle. I'm just a philosopher, not a tech analyst or economist, but I hope to have a, at least convince you that this is one of those policy debates that's not about the ends, but means. Whatever side you're on, it's quite probable that the people you're demonizing want the same thing you want. Uh, and then a note here, this was published from Fee. Uh, Kyle, he's an associ- assistant professor of philosophy at Sacramento State University. Um, so we're, we're getting towards the end here. I just wanted to to cover this discussion of net neutrality openly uh, with you folks, because I think the the hysteria that's been promoted by those, not necessarily on the left, just those who, they want the internet. They want internet to be something they have access to, and they don't have to worry about um, the internet disappearing, or they don't have to worry about paying like a subscription service for different content from ISPs. Here's the thing. Did any of this happen pre-2015? Honestly, there, there maybe is like, what, two, three instances where any company possibly went out of its way to uh, to throttle a, a particular um, you know form of content to its users? Uh, a lot of what we're having here in this discussion about ISPs uh, being... Um, you know, these, these evil monsters and such, and that we need to use net neutrality to limit their ability to be monsters. Unfortunately, uh, net neutrality wouldn't fix this. Uh, and I think that's one thing, if we would, uh, to paraphrase Milton Friedman, we need to start looking at the outcomes of these government programs rather than their intentions. Uh, you look at what net neutrality has been, uh, its intentions are, and that's to prevent uh, these these ISPs from harming not only consumers, but these uh, these lower-tiered um, people that would be utilizing the internet, such as your mom-and-pop shots. But the reality is, as we discussed earlier, it's actually creating an environment that's going to make it easier for these abuses to take place. Uh, 
So with that being said, I, I want to hear your thoughts. What's your, your feedback here about net neutrality? Uh, do you, do you support net neutrality? And, and if so, why, what, what was I discussing here that, uh, I got wrong and, uh, you know, please come enlighten me. Um, I'm by no stretch of the imagination, a, a tech expert. I work in tech, um, on a consulting side, but not in terms of the day-to-day operations of such. But I want to hear your thoughts. Go to the Facebook uh, page at B Nichols Liberty. Go ahead, tell me what you think about the, uh, the the episode today. Or if you want, head over to Twitter at B Nichols Liberty. Uh, reply to the the, uh, the tweet with this show. Tell me, you know, what what I got right, what I got wrong, where we could have done better. Um, give us your thoughts. I'd love to hear it because at the end of the day, that's how we get better. We learn from one another and uh, we try to uh, to do better going forward. But uh, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, another fun-filled episode. I like it because it's fun. It was filled with fun and information. And hopefully you walked away from today's episode feeling that you learned a little something-something. Um, you didn't have to agree with me. I And if you didn't, A-okay. I want us to be able to talk to each other, learn about uh, where other positions are coming from, and, and that's the only way we're ever going to be able to, uh, to have conversations with one another. Uh, but with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, for joining me again this week on The Brian Nichols Show. Follow me on Twitter at B Nichols Liberty and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And be sure to tune in next week again for the, uh, the fun-filled episode we'll have there with Adam Kokesh talking about his uh, candidacy for the 2020 presidential uh, nomination for the Libertarian Party. Uh, but until next time, folks, it's Brian Nichols here signing off. Have a good week, and we'll chat soon.